0: Welcome to The Greenhouse Effect. Our hope is that this podcast would be like a greenhouse to help you get unstuck and grow into your full potential because life ought to be fully lived. Hey, this is your host, Steve Perkins, and today's guest is a famous leader in the world of food, but he talks about two of my all-time favorite topics, cheese and having a life vision. He's really been featured everywhere. He is a writer, a teacher, and the co-founder of Zingerman's, which is an incredible, incredible company and group of restaurants. He's the author of Zingerman's Guide to Good Leading, The Lapsed Anarchist's Approach to Building a Great Business, and most recently, um, The Art of Business. But he's also the author of these secret pamphlets like Building a Vision of Greatness, which we'll talk about more, and it's one of my favorites. Uh if you haven't heard of Zingerman's you definitely need to look them up immediately. It's a pretty famous deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan that has an incredible experience when you go there and also the food is is amazing. But it's actually more than just the deli. It's actually community of businesses, um a bakery, a creamery and we'll talk about that in the episode. And some of the favorite things that Zingerman's offers are the cheese of the month club, bacon of the month club. I mean, come on. This is Incredible. So if you haven't heard of them, please check them out. Ari is also recipient of the James Beard Award for the who's who in food and beverage in America. And so Zingerman's really just embodies a lot of the concepts and ideas and things we talk about on Greenhouse Effect. So I couldn't be more excited to have you on the show today. I mean, I think you kind of grew up in the era of like a lot of fake foods, and I'm just curious, like what originally captivated you or even captivates you now about food?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, nothing in particular originally captivated me about food. I just got a job as a dishwasher in a restaurant in town, so I could make enough money to pay my rent and not have to move back home to Chicago after I graduated from Michigan with my degree in Russian history. And that's then it's through that work that, uh, I met Paul Saginaw, who's been my partner in all this from the beginning, as well as Frank Carollo, who's one of the partners in our bakehouse and Maggie Bayless, who's one of the partners at Zing Train. Uh, but then also that's where I discovered, you know, that I liked cooking and I liked the food business. So, so there was no, there was no real intentional or conscious passion in in my taking of that job it was (laughs) i needed to pay rent um you know where where i'm at now all these years later i mean you know i quickly found that i i love the food uh it's fascinating i think i guess that's maybe something that you know anybody who studies history has uh, uh, i don't know an advantage but uh, you know we (laughs) you you tend to realize that almost anything that you actually study a lot is super interesting and so whether like I just read a book about history of trains in the 19th century in Europe. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's fascinating, but I wouldn't have thought it was fascinating. It's just once you start to understand all the socioeconomic dynamics of it and the impact of it and all of that, it becomes much more interesting. And, you know, the same thing happened with food. So it's just not just the act of doing the work, but it's understanding where the food came from and why it is what it is. And, you know, all of the religious issues, economic issues uh you know military conquest geography geology i mean it's all coming into play in terms of why the food is what it is in each area and when we opened the deli in 1982 which is four years roughly after i had started uh, washi dishes in fact today is our 37th anniversary actually uh congrats yeah on we go but uh but anyway when we started the deli you know i didn't know that much about traditional food i mean i've been cooking in the restaurant but you know, then I just started studying and I haven't stopped since. And it's not like I wasn't doing anything before that. But, you know, when we were going to actually like sell cheese, uh, retail, you know, that sort of thing, it became much more important to really understand more about it and where it came from and why it was what it was.
0: Yeah, that's so true. The more you learn about it, even just thinking, you know, Zingerman's for me was, was an entry point. But then the more I read and shows I watch, and the more I get into food, it's like the more the passion for it grows out of that. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, we've talked a little bit about the anarchist papers and studying a lot of that it seemed to be yeah. a big influence for you, and it was really fascinating to me how it ties into these ideas of designing the life that you want. And how is that um yeah. You know, what did that do for you personally, kind of studying that stuff?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think... Like many things in life, partly we are drawn to it for some not always conscious reason, you know, in our psyche or our mind or whatever. But then also, as like I said before, I mean, as you study it, it becomes more interesting and it kind of creates this iterative cycle. Uh, You know, I think that I studied it when I was in school and I, I liked it because it resonated with my own struggles, you know, just the whole idea of encouraging people to be themselves and a free choice and you know not being forced to comply with the status quo and you know but to to live a life that's your life of your choosing and uh that really you know a lot of it is about creativity and honoring everybody as as a unique intelligent person and you know essentially it's based on a positive belief in people really so anyway I studied it while I was in school but then you know when I got out of school I mean I wasn't really on my mind that much uh, I mean I liked it, but you know I like a lot of things so uh you know and i I guess I would always say when i when I started to get into management in the restaurants, this is before we opened, but when I was working for other people, I sort of naively tried leaving everyone alone uh in the belief they would just do the right thing which <laughs> didn't work at all yeah <laughs> uh, and so for for years, I would say i was I was a lapsed anarchist because I still believed in it, but I didn't practice. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how I went along. And then, I don't know, it's probably about 10 years now when I was working on part one of the book. Just coincidentally, Deborah Dash Moore, who is was the head of the Jewish Studies Department, asked me if I would speak to the Jewish Studies Department. And, I, you know, by that point, I was speaking quite a bit in business conferences. And, you know, when I would give my history there, they don't, nobody really knows anything about anarchism or what it is, so they just sort yeah. of chuckle nervously, and then, then we move on to the real subject. But anyway, when I was getting ready, she she wanted title to title the talk Rye Bread and Anarchism because I had just written this long essay on the history of Jewish rye bread, and she knew I had studied the anarchists, and I said, sure, sounds great. It was like a year ahead of time. I didn't really worry about it. And, uh, you know, but when we got to like 60, 90 days out, I was like, man, these people actually know who all the anarchists were, and you know I'm gonna look like an idiot because I haven't looked at my books in you know whatever <laughs> twenty years. Yeah, and uh, so you know I dug out all my old books and I started rereading stuff that I hadn't looked at in ages, and it really it blew my mind. Uh, and then I did what history majors know how to do: it's just study more and study more and study more. And the two the two big things that that grabbed me were a. I hadn't realized how much of the way we had created the organization was uh, aligned with a lot of what I'd been studying. So, you know, it had resonated, maybe it was instinctively aligned with my own, you know, whatever basic values, but, you know, we had sort of done a lot of it without knowing we had done it. And then B, even more uh, shockingly, I realized how much of what they were writing about was actually very aligned with what's now called progressive business. And a lot of the main Themes that you know every progressive business writer touches on: employee engagement, treating people in, in, like they're intelligent. Uh, people don't do good work if they don't believe in what they're doing. Purpose, right? Uh, self-organizing work teams. You know, these are all anarchism, right? And you know, not getting into hierarchical models and staying away from overuse of authority and all, all of the stuff that basically they were writing and they were writing it in a totally different context. And, and often as a reaction formally to, to the state and government, which isn't really my issue, but it, it all came out of the, the industrial revolution, which has been applied everywhere. And, and basically, you know, the downside of the industrial revolution was it was dehumanized, it dehumanized people, right? So people, right. instead of being honored for the, their individual self became essentially a, a part in a machine. Uh, that was used in order to extract income for people who were pulling the levers. And, you know, they reacted to that for good reason, uh, I would say. And, uh, you know, so that, so when I started to realize that it it just, you know, I started studying more and studying more and then it really helped me even further to understand how much hierarchical thinking is embedded in American culture. It's not just in the U S it's much of the world. And that you know how much hierarchical thinking is damaging our effectiveness and causing all sorts of problems, so anyway, it's been pretty interesting, and each book as a, as the series progresses uh from one to two to three to four has more and more stuff about it
0: <laughs> yeah, I think
1: it's really it's it's very relevant and it, it's really the opposite of what uh happens in politics, I mean, which clearly, regardless of one's opinions, isn't going that great.
0: Well, that's part of what's so exciting to me about your, your books, especially is most people would just associate and I, I was in this group, too, you hear the word anarchist, and you just purely associate it with these political ideas and associations. But really, when you get into it, like you said, there's so much there that is almost like bringing back the humanity and the kind of life the the industrial revolution kind of took away from us we every human wants that sense of freedom and autonomy and purpose and creativity and and in so many ways that whole age stripped it away in the vast majority of our life at work and and it's almost like people are rediscovering (laughs) it's like oh we assume that's the way life has to be no it was just one period in history where that kind of got introduced
1: yep Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think the, the the repercussions of it, the consequences of it are everywhere. I mean, and, you know, it's also happened in the environment, I mean, because it's really the same hierarchical model, which is basically, you know, nature serves man uh, that's created a lot of the problems ecologically.
0: Yeah, but I appreciate your honesty, too. And I've experienced some of this myself where like, so your first approach is just give everyone complete autonomy. And then that doesn't work so great either in an organization. So... There's Right. There's balance well, it was,
1: it was interesting. Yeah. Part of what, what I think caught my attention when I started to restudy was just re- reading quite a bit of stuff they had written about, uh, about why organization was fine. And there wasn't anything in, in, in anarchism that was opposed to organization. It was just opposed to the imposition of organization rules and systems that people had no say in, uh, You know, and so once you start to involve people, which again is just progressive business, once you start to involve them in designing the systems that they're going to be a part of, uh, it's a whole different story. And I I think, you know, I believe and I think it's endemic in whatever you want to look at, lean or whatever. It's just that you're going to get a better system by involving the people that are doing the work. So the two really come together in an interesting way.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. One thing I've learned is through a lot of mistakes is. A lot of personalities crave structure and kind of knowing what they're supposed to do um or what's yeah. expected, but I love the phrase yeah. freedom within a framework cuz they still want to have yeah. a say. They still want freedom to be creative within that. They just want more structure than maybe someone like you or I would.
1: Yep. Well, and it's yeah, I think that everybody, I mean, this is part of my learning in part 3 the book has a uh, essay about creativity is you know was learning that people do better when there is some structure i used to have the belief that you know any structure was going to impinge on their creativity but i learned the hard way that it's actually the other way if you have no no framework at all then people get anxious and paralyzed so when you give some structure but leave them freedom to do the content then good things are going to come and you know just as one example i mean that's really what our visioning process is about and really all of our organizational recipes, whether it's for three steps to great service, five steps to handling customer complaint, any of those things are all designed to give some structure, but leave people the freedom to interpret, you know, what needs to be done in the moment. Uh
0: oh, I love that so much. Um, so one thing that I think is really cool that maybe a lot, you know, Zingerman's is, is, pretty famous at this point a lot of people know or uh of it or have been to the deli or order stuff but maybe what a lot of people aren't as familiar with is that it's a community of businesses and yeah i think there's a lot of from what i've observed there's a lot of intention behind that for you guys but also it's it's is another part of that dna of freedom and creativity in business um, while still being profitable and successful and Uh, Maybe just share a bit about that, because I think a lot of people aren't as familiar. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like I said, 37 years ago today, we started, Paul and I started the deli, which was in a 1,300 square foot space with two employees and (laughs) 29 seats and (laughs) a little bit of specialty food and 25 sandwiches on the menu and stuff. And then, you know, we didn't know anything about visioning, I mean, but uh, in part one of the book uh, there's an essay called 12 natural laws of business. And, uh, it's my belief that every successful organization, whether it's a basketball team or a jazz band or a business, you know, a a manufacturing business, it doesn't matter. All of them are basically living in harmony with those natural laws, even if they don't realize that they're living in harmony with the natural laws. And, uh, And so, in essence, uh, the first one on that list is is that everybody who's doing something great has a vision of greatness. You know, we had one in our head. We didn't know how to write it down or anything like that. So, anyways, looking back, I would say, you know, the vision essentially would have included, had we written it down, (laughs) that, you know, we wanted something really unique, not a copy of something from New York or Chicago or L.A., Uh, that we wanted to make a great place for people to work with great food and service, but do it in a very down to earth setting. And that from the beginning, we only wanted one. And I, you know, I still feel that way uh, today. It's, I think it's much more interesting uh, and inspiring to me to be part of something really unique and special. And I think as you start to open multiple units, you know, clearly the money gets better, but, but the, uh, but the, uh, to me, it gets less interesting, you know, in the same way that the difference between whatever a Bob Dylan song and a, a cover band at a bar mitzvah playing the same song,
0: Right. <laughs> just,
1: you know, and it doesn't make it evil. It's just it's just not inspiring. And so anyway, as we added on to the building once and then we added on again and we grew, you know, we got to a point. So we were, let's see, 12 years in. So this summer in 93, uh, Paul. Sat me down one morning in front of the deli, you know, about 10 o'clock when I, by all rights, should have been inside getting the sandwich line set up. And with no real warning, he kind of looked at me and, you know, goes, Okay, in 10 years, what are we doing? And my reaction was basically like, Why are you asking (laughs) that work to do?
0: Uh,
1: Which, you know, which turned into a sort of, you know, little mini argument in the moment, but ultimately ended up with us agreeing like he was somewhat trying to say without maybe the words that we would have now that we had fulfilled our original vision of the business, you know, which I now equate to sort of organizational midlife. And, uh, you know, in theory, you're a success, but you're not rich and you're not done. And you, you know, you, you did this thing you set out to do that people didn't think you could do, but you're, you're not finished, right? So uh, we spent about a year trying to write a vision, or agree on a future. Uh, he had asked me about 10 years, but we actually went 15 years down in the future. Uh, so we ended up in 2009, and that vision uh, was like six pages long. And in it is where we outlined the idea, detailed the idea of having a community of businesses. And uh, the idea was that we could grow, but grow by opening uh, new and unique Zingerman's businesses. So we would keep the uniqueness of the deli, but still continue to, you know, to grow the organization, and that it would operate as one organization with these semi-autonomous pieces. Hence the community, and that in each business we wanted uh, a it would have its own specialty. So you know now what you know the bakehouse, the creamery, the coffee company, etc. And then uh, and that there would be a managing partner, partners in each business who owned part of that business and had a real passion for what that business did and the belief that I still hold, which is when there is somebody on site who's really passionate about the work of the business, that's where you're going to get to greatness. You know, and that nothing against good managers because they're certainly out there but you know having an owner on site who's driven not for just 10 months or 2 years or 3 years but for 10 or 20 or 30 years to keep making it better and better and better to me is really important so that's where I came from and then uh, you know today whatever 37 years exactly down the road we have about 700 staff members and we'll do about 65 million dollars in sales and the community of businesses includes as I mentioned, I mean, the deli, of course, but the bakehouse, uh, our creamery where we make fresh cheese and gelato, uh, our coffee roasting candy business. Uh, we have an event space uh, called Corman Farms, which is an 1834 farmhouse and 1837 barn that we totally renovated where we do, you know, weddings and corporate events and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zing Train is our training business. We have a mail order business we ship all over the country. Uh, we have a little Korean restaurant called Miss Kim. Uh, Zingerman's Roadhouse is a sit-down restaurant that's all regional American food, and then uh, our newest formal business is our food tour business, and we've actually been doing the tours for probably 15 years or more, but uh, but it, we formally spun it off, and Christy Braybleck, who's worked here for about 14 or 15 years, is now the managing partner.
0: <laughs> it's so fun. I, I think maybe halfway through reading one of the secret pamphlets on creating a vision of greatness, I kind of put it down for a minute. And I was like, Oh, I know why I'm so drawn to these. It's so it's just so aligned with my vision and hope for greenhouse. And you guys are you're not only living that out. But I mean, in some ways, to me, it's ahead of your time, you're ahead of your times with those ideas. Um, I mean, I've, even seen now in in the corporate world, I really believe this kind of model could work better, where you, you yeah. allow people to have more ownership of what they work on and more autonomous teams yeah. or groups, and and people again think that's maybe not possible, but I think you guys are showing it's actually it is possible.
1: I mean, you know, I, I think it works, and I think it's imperfect, but everything's imperfect, and right. I think it's it's more aligned with nature, whereas hierarchy is actually unnatural. And, it, you know, it has its place from our operational standpoint. I mean, if you always oh, say if you're playing football, somebody's got to be the quarterback. But it doesn't make the quarterback a better person and doesn't mean the quarterback has all the answers.
0: Right. And you kind of alluded to this with the dolly, but um, keeping uniqueness is a key thing, too, because, uh, you know, yeah. so many people in business struggle with this. They start a small business. It's all about the quality, the customer experience, you know it's all about that stuff and they want to grow too. And the more success they have, the more they lose that, that uniqueness. And so it feels like uh, this or that. And I I think I love that you guys are, you've been building more of an and.
1: Well, I think it's, it's uh, the new pamphlet. I think I mentioned is the art of business and it's really just about approaching business in life. Like you're making art or music or poetry or whatever. And I, I think there's no right or wrong answer as to what to do. It's just that when you do it, purposefully with the idea of creating something beautiful and amazing and and effective uh it's a different story and i i I guess i would say that most people who start a smaller business have a vision in their head of course uh like us they kind of fulfilled it but there's no paul there going we finished what do we do next and then they just keep going and when we teach visioning and you probably read it in the pamphlet i mean i always use the the sort of fable or metaphor, or whatever of the, you know, which I didn't make up, but I mean, of the guy who goes to the construction site of the Duomo and Milan and Italy like late 15th century, or I've often also seen the cathedral at Chartres in France, used, but either way, you know, he comes along and he sees the first guy and he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm laying stone. And he comes to the second guy and he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral. And of course, we all get it quickly, which is that the first person's job is repetitive and relatively boring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the second one has, you know, context, purpose, and understands mm-hmm. how much his or her work is a part of the greater whole. And so I think that's really what a lot of this is anyway. So when I was working on part four of the book, which is on beliefs, I wrote further thoughts on visioning, which I'd had. And I realized that, you know, if your original vision is your cathedral, what tends to happen because people don't ever write the next vision. They just sort of like the cathedral got built according to the original plans, but then the workmen kept coming and they just kept, you know, workmen wanting work.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
1: they they take that original elegant amazing you know blueprint or whatever and they just add a two-car garage on the back and then they add a pool on the deck then they add another story on the side and, you know and each piece on its own is well intended but you take the sort of elegance of the original thought and dream and vision and turn it into this hodgepodge of stuff and uh in practice i i realize it's it's a lot like the uh what's now called the winchester mystery house i think it's the winchester mansion out near san jose uh you know which was going from memory but late uh second half of the 19th century the guy who had invented the winchester rifle died and uh, his wife went to a mystic to you know see what was coming and what to do and the mystic told her that all the souls of the people who had been killed by the rifle created by her husband, were going to come and get her. And, uh, that the only way she could hold them at bay was to continue the construction of this mansion that he had started (laughs) having built before he died. And so for like 30 years, they kept building the mansion and they just, the point was to keep building, not to create something beautiful, but you know, just to keep the construction going in order to stay out of trouble. And, uh, And so, you know, they ended up with like 180 rooms and bathrooms that don't work and staircases that lead nowhere. And I think that's a very uh, (laughs) apt example of what happens in a lot of organizations where growth just becomes
0: something you do because you could. Right. I mean, inspiration is really important to you in business i think it's important in anything in life i mean if you have kids and you don't want them you're not gonna you know some of this reminds me of another pretty famous michigan-based business herman miller and yeah max dupree i think he was the ceo at one point not the founder but he talks a lot about that intersection of art and business and even saying it's an intersection assumes they're separate but I think it seems like you view them as actually one whole.
1: No, I think it's the same. I mean, I think that, I mean, clearly you can do business in an unartful way (laughs) of which there, and you could live in an unartful way, you know, and, and then conversely you can live in an artful way and you can live, you know, run a business in an artful way. And of course we need to pay the bills. So it's not, it's not uh, immune from the, you know, pressures of the financial market, but, I uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I quote Gary Snyder, the poet, uh, in, in in the pamphlet. And he, you know, gave this talk and he said, basically, like, you know, if you can make art that people want then that, and sell it, that's great. He said, but really great art is when you make what you want and get people to buy it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that you know, about I, musicians. I, I stand by that.
0: Yeah. yeah, you ask musician friends about yeah. a song they wrote and you think it you know had all this meaning for you they were just thinking about you the whole time they're writing it and then you get a little disappointed here like no they were just really bummed that day and wrote it for themselves
1: (laughs) yeah but then there's the other side which is that's the point is that we all put our own meaning into things and that's not a bad thing i mean you know i think most of the world again with this hierarchical mindset has been trained to like wait for the brilliant in this case artist but leader or whatever boss or whatever to figure it out and it's like no they don't really know what they're doing either or else they're trying to figure it out. (laughs) And the more you get people to own their own piece of it and to go for greatness within everything they're doing, then I think the better it's going to go.
0: So crafting this vision, I mean, it's been a lot of um, the driving force behind what you've built and continue to build. It also has helped you kind of keep creating the life you really want along the way. Cause I'm, I know you guys have had, Tons of great opportunities that may not have aligned with that. And now you even help people write their own personal vision. What does that look like? Because I, I think some people don't naturally understand this concept of vision. And they're like, what are you even, ta- what are you even talking about? What is it practically?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, so it's, it's literally a written document uh, that's basically a story. Uh, except it's your story, and except it, instead of happening in the moment, it's actually happening at a date in the future that you chose, and you're basically writing your own story of what success in your life, your business, your project, your relationship, whatever it might be, what what that success is going to be like. So, you know, if it it could, I, I mean, generally, if it's for a business, they tend to be two, three, four, five, six, seven pages, you know, because if you're running a large organization. I don't think you can state in two sentences what it's really going to look and feel like, Uh, you know, but even a small one can be helpful. I mean, I just uh, read one from a server at the roadhouse, you know, which was great. I mean, it was two paragraphs, but it just talked about how much better she was going to handle things a year down the road and that that she's doing bad work now, but she knows she can improve in a bunch of areas. And she talked about how she was doing that and, you know, it was inspiring to me and I think it was inspiring for her and and for the other people she works with. So it's really just getting clarity on where you're going. I mean, we all have thoughts in our head of where we might want to go, but we tend to change our minds every, you know, for me, 15 minutes for other people might be every 15 days. But, you know, the, the idea of really describing success with detail is a whole different thing. And I think also that, uh, you know, the more I've studied it, it's clear. I mean, it's a natural human process that everybody, like I said earlier, that's getting to greatness personally or collectively is doing, right? So, you know, I grew up in Chicago. Michael Jordan always used to say he could see the ball going through the hoop before it left his hand. Uh, if you study music, then you realize that I wouldn't have known, but I talked to enough musicians, you know, that mostly in, in school, they get trained to hear the song over and over in their head, even when they're not actually playing it because they're imagining what it's going to be like, Uh, you know, and I I think every kid models this daily because, you know, when you get home, your five-year-old might've turned the living room into a restaurant or, you know, they might've become a superhero in five minutes after dinner and they don't pull permits and they don't, you know, get licensed. They just do it. And I think that's what we all are born knowing how to do, (laughs) but society teaches us, you know, how to be afraid and how to hold back and how to limit ourselves, you know, which is not terrible, but, it's it's it it holds people back from going after what we want and we get stuck you know with the pressure to do this or the pressure to do that or to be this or you know and it's all well intended but it doesn't really help us be ourselves
0: yeah in fact for myself and others, I find that's one of the most helpful things is yeah. to just tap back into the dreams you had as a kid before you had all those filters and expectations. Yeah, and I,
1: you know, like I said, I mean, I wouldn't have had any of these dreams when I was a kid. But I, I think at any stage that you're at, I mean, it's the the point of the visioning, which you know from your own uh, reading of the pamphlets and stuff, is the process that we physically use is that people sit down and, uh, and like basically, as we call it hot pen, you get them, give them this framework and give them this background and then they start writing and the instruction is you have to keep writing until we tell you to stop. You know, which in a short class might be 10 minutes like I taught yesterday but if, if you were coming to the two day Zinc Train Visioning Seminar, it would be more like 40 or 45 minutes. And, you know, when they're writing for, for that long and just, you know, setting themselves in the future, describing that future, a lot comes out. And it's it's really my belief that pretty much everybody knows what they want, but we just get trained how to not, you know, honor it.
0: Yeah. I I find it really exciting and hopeful. I mean, I found the the best parts of my vision when I was writing it and doing the drafts was um, when I started to feel emotion kind of well up inside, there was something really meaningful there and it actually would feel uncomfortable because it feels maybe unrealistic sometimes, but that's when it, was really tapping into something real
1: yep yep i Um, mean that's but that's the point i mean it's you know business plans are great and i'm all for them but they're rarely about emotion (laughs) and so i I always say the business plan is important it's like the structural engineers drawing for your dream house like you want it you want to make sure the dream house (laughs) is going to stand up Uh but unless you're a structural engineer no one gets excited and you know teary-eyed about a girder right and you know so so the point is it it needs to be sound and those those that work is not unimportant but the truth is what gets most people inspired is you know for us whatever it's i'm at the creamery right now it's a it's the look in a kid's eye when they taste how good the gelato is or you know it's uh i just got a, a thank you email from a employee who moved on after nine years to take a job at the university you know but it's which is okay. I mean, she, you know, she's grown so much in the nine years. It's so amazing to see her do that. And I'm happy for her to go to the next place she wants to be, you know? And uh, so I think those are the things that get most of us going. And I think the money's not unimportant. I looked at it like the gas in the car or whatever you need it. But for me, at least the money's never what's inspired me. It's, yeah. it's, it's critical to the health of the organization. So I'm not down on it, but I never get up in the morning excited about money. Right. I like I like to have it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But but I think the point is that there's so much more to it. And I think most of that is little emotionally engaging stuff that people would never put in a
0: business plan. Right. And I mean, I would even argue, I think you're probably more likely to make more money if you're tapping into that vision and going after that.
1: Well, you're certainly more likely to do the work. Uh, and And also, if you... You know, when you know that what you're going after, let's say in this case, is the growth of the people in the organization and you're telling stories about how they've grown and you're 10 years in the future, and then you start to share that vision with the people you're hiring and working with, I mean, it's just, you know, (laughs) it's guaranteed to increase the odds of it happening. I mean, if no one knows that's what you're trying to do, they're going to make up their own version in their head and it's unlikely to match yours.
0: Yeah, I think you talked about that in the books that... You know, for things to really work and be fulfilling, you need to actually believe in what you're doing and, and even who you're yeah. doing it with.
1: Yep. Yep. That's absolutely, that's the whole of part four, which is on beliefs. I mean, if, if I just, you know, it's, it's obvious in hindsight, but, uh, the book is basically framed around this self-fulfilling belief cycle, which I learned from Bob Wright, uh, in Chicago, who, he and his wife, Judith, run the Wright Institute, and uh, he doesn't remember where he learned it, so I don't know who to give ultimate credit to. But anyway, it blew my mind. And then once again, I started studying and studying and studying. And, you know, it's just clear, like when people don't believe in what they're doing, they do mediocre work. <laughs> if, uh, you know, whatever basketball player doesn't believe in the coach, they're not going to run the plays well.
0: Yeah. Something that's been fun for me is I've been encouraging people to try your process is people get all, think it's all daunting, this this whole vision thing. And then they find it super easy and really fun. And even a a friend was saying, you know, even somebody who maybe is more of a planner type and but they're always planning a party or a dinner like they have vision, too. Like you said, they're imagining the music and the food and the feel of it and where things will be placed like that's vision, too. So everyone has that ability. You just might not be used to exercising it really intentionally.
1: Yep. Absolutely. No question about it. I always say when people, when I'm teaching, I mean, I just ask who has little kids and, you know, inevitably, whatever, half the room will raise their hand. And, you know, I just say all all the people with little kids in this room have envisioned in their head a positive relationship with their child when the child is an adult, like everybody does. And, you know, and then I always say point out, which is true which is when you want to kill them you don't because you know you'll never get to your vision <laughs> and
0: yeah. and they all
1: laugh because it's kind of
0: true yeah well you actually kind of sparked a thought about the practical side of all this because you know some people might object like okay well first of all i can't predict the future so writing it out you know, right
1: well this is the opposite of predicting though this is not predicting at all this is only saying what you want
0: mm, Yep. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's not
1: yeah. like this is where the economy's headed. And I don't mean like you might not take that into account, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, this is the future you want. So like how big an organization you want, I don't think has anything to do with prediction. It's just, do you want to manage two people or 2,000 or 200,000? You know, like I don't really want to go public, but it's not based on the market. It's just based on the, the impact of having publicly traded stock you know, would have on us and I'm not interested in it.
0: Yeah. It's such a good point because, you know, I find people are like, they're not being honest with themselves. You know, maybe the first draft of their vision is like, well, I want, I want <clears throat> to do this a little bit and make a little of this. Right. And, and then you're like, no, what do you really want? Like, you're not being honest with yourself. Right. right. Part of the value right. is just getting honest with what you actually want in life. Cause how are you ever gonna yeah, live into it and feel great about it if you're not honest about it?
1: Yep. Yeah. And that's, you know, it was hard for me to learn that too. I mean, it's just, but that's where I, I guess I've learned through years of doing this. I mean, the hot pen process works. And I I think when I talk about it, sometimes what people hear is you need to figure out your vision and then document it. But I'm like, no, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. What Mm -hmm. I'm saying is you sit down, not even knowing what your vision is going to be and you start writing because the writing process will tap into what's in your heart. And by writing quickly and not stopping, it's short circuits. Uh, it circuits directly from, i us say, from your emotional heart or whatever into your onto the paper. And you don't have time to overthink it. And so the faster people write, the more what they really want
0: comes out. That's so good. And just for everyone, we'll have the link in the show notes where you can find these books and pamphlets that explain not only more of the heart behind it, but the actual process of how you go through it, which is super helpful kind of takes the guesswork out and you've done it with i don't know what thousands of people at this point <laughs> it's oh yeah many <laughs> you know many. it gave me another thought that you think about like why do people always use apple as an example in everything you know it seems like every business example everyone always uses apple and i think part of it is because they most deser- most organizations kind of start with the engineering and then wrap some design around that to make it mm-hmm. attractive and and they were one of the few who said, no, let's start with design and that end, yeah. end vision and then engineer the structure to fit it. And it, in a sense, that's what's happening here where, you know, someone can write yeah. a vision of greatness and then you can figure out the how, but until you have that vision yep. You're just going to always kind of design something mediocre to fit what's like status quo.
1: Yep, absolutely. And I, you know, not like Apple's the model for everything, but I mean, certainly if you look at, I mean, I'm looking at somebody else's Apple right now. I mean, it's aesthetically (laughs) nice and, you know, they're certainly had their issues like we all do, you know, but they did do things differently and they did make it more artistic. And I don't mean just making it look good is enough. It has to work too, of course, just like. You know, creating an amazing restaurant, but the food sucks or the service sucks, (laughs) it's going (laughs) to fail. But the food and the service are part of the art, is the point. And it's not just about superficial looks, you know. And great art, whether it's painting or music or poetry or sculpture, whatever it is, I mean, great art, you know, it's it's always the the artist, uh, you know, the musician, whatever, is putting their passion, their soul, their heart into it in a way that's unique to them. And it's the same with vision and. Part of you know, going back to our industrial revolution thing, I mean and dehumanization, part of what I realized in the writing of the fourth book on beliefs about vision is it honors human nature because no one can write this vision the same way you do. <laughs> like it'll never happen.
0: Wow. That's right? actually so a so really there might be great point.
1: Yeah, there might be a hundred thousand, I don't know, five hundred thousand plumbers in America or five hundred thousand entrepreneurs in New York City, but none of them will write the same vision as the other. And so it's really like a fingerprint, you know, or whatever retina scan. I mean, it just, it's you and there's no one else but you that's in
0: there. Wow. You know, that kind of explains another business belief I have is I almost don't even believe in competition. And when people, it's almost the first question when I went into business, first question everyone asked me was, who's your competitors? And I just thought, well, if you're doing it your unique way with your vision, you're not really going to have any competitors like yeah there's other people doing the kind of stuff you're doing but then you're actually helping each other in some ways
1: yeah absolutely uh couldn't couldn't agree more no i think it's real i think it's you know i i mean we've always said like we compete with everybody at one level because people decide to go out to eat or stay home you know i mean so it's you know they decide to go to the deli or go to the amusement park you know so it's In a sense, you're competing with everybody, but really we compete with ourselves because I'm much more focused on did we meet our own standards, Uh, you know, and how do we get better all the time? That's the focus. And I just figure if we do that, you know, if we deliver on what we're supposed to do and we keep getting better all the time, I'm not that worried about what everybody else does. (laughs) And. Uh, there's a there's a quote. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but from Simon uh, Sinek, uh, the business writer who's done a lot of good stuff. Uh, Start with Why is one of his books, and you know, he said, if you compete with other people, no one wants to help you. If you compete with yourself, everyone wants to help you.
0: My wife and I. Both went to University of Michigan, and when I graduated, my parents came into town, and they were like, "All right, what do you? Where do you want to eat to celebrate?" And I thought for a second, and I said, "I want to get the sweet potato fries at Zingerman's Roadhouse." <laughs> and yeah, well we good. went, and I think I just <laughs> ate sweet potato fries with that delicious dip, and they're almost like a work of art to me. I, they sound it sounds like a yeah. simple thing, but um, to me, no, those but that's are...
1: the simple things are the art, and I think that you know, if you study art, like overcomplicating things actually undermines the art, you know, so like some of the best songs in the world are, you know, whatever, like one fiddle player in Ireland just playing, you know, or Bob Dylan acoustic, you know, I mean, so I'm not down on that bigger stuff too, but (laughs) it's just, you know, sometimes it's the simplest, the simplest forms, you know, where you bear your soul really, and you make yourself vulnerable that that's where it's going to come from.
0: All right. For anyone who's inspired by this, what's one small next step they could take?
1: Well, what's one small step? I guess I'm a reader. Buy a book. <laughs> if the book's too much, buy it. you know we do pamphlets like you mentioned of individual essays, but the whole point of them is to put this stuff down on paper where people can get at it.
0: I'll um I'll cover this one for you. Everyone needs to check out the secret pamphlets on the Zingerman's dot com site because they have great books. But I love that these are really. Um, each one is very short and so you kind of get these yeah. little appetizers and it's it all, it all builds up to the bigger books so
1: yeah i guess i hadn't thought about it so you just said that but it's a little bit like the small plates version of learning
0: yeah yeah that's good it really is and for me for someone like me who's a slow reader uh that's really helpful yeah
1: <laughs> i like it i'm gonna start marketing it top
0: tapas for teaching nice <laughs> Here at Greenhouse Effect we are big fans of our friends at Belay Solutions, a company that provides incredibly top-notch virtual staffing. They actually provide us with executive assistance, but they also staff bookkeepers, web specialists, and social media managers. And the thing is, their customer experience is just incredible and they have a way of finding just the right people for your needs. So we want to give you a taste of what it's like to work with Belay from one of their clients, Dave Richards, the CEO of Elite Performance Associates. Belay saved me when I was focused on growing my business.
1: You know, I can think of recently, um, I was working with a high profile, uh, you know, federal government agency on a conference for them. And it had a lot of moving parts. You know, my VA allowed me to confidently let go of all of those things and just focus solely on preparing content and delivering a high value program to the client. Belay follows up with me, how can I give more this constant prodding of, you know, how do you, how can we help you more? How can we pull more from your plate so that you can do, you know, what you're meant to do and what you're best at.
0: If you resonate with any of this and want more information, go to belaysolutions.com slash next step. The link is also in the show notes and we've partnered with Belay to give you $200 off your startup fees. What would be your one book recommendation for people? There's so many. I'm not going to give you one. Uh, Anything
1: by Peter Black is great. Brenda Ueland, U-E-L-A-N-D, wrote a book in 1937 called If You Want to Write that I totally love. If people are interested at all in business philosophy, uh, Peter Kestenbaum, K-O-E-S-T-E-N-B-A-U-M, is an amazing thinker. So those are some quick ones that come to mind. You mentioned Max Dupree before. He certainly wrote some great books, too. There's so many. <laughs> I'm a history major. We live on books. But people, you know, I, my, my, my email is just ariadzingerman.com. so people are welcome to email me directly, too. And then in the back of the books I write, there's like long reading lists of other things that I recommend.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, Please share it with a friend. Don't forget to subscribe and come on, do us a favor. Leave a five-star review. It'll help others find the show too.